everybody. Welcome back to Gear 30 on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com, and that includes the sign-up to the Blister Summit that we are going to be holding in February. Now, to be clear, registration at this point in time is only open to Blister members, and because the Blister Summit is so cool, as we proved last year, this is without question worth it to become a Blister member if you are not one already, and then turn around and register for the Blister Summit. We already have many people signing up for the summit. There will be a finite number of spaces available. And so we strongly encourage you to become a Blister member if you are not one already, and then go sign up for the Blister Summit. And we'll all see you in Crested Butte in February. Okay, today we have Bodie Miller making his debut on Gear 30. Now, the last time we talked to Bodie was actually almost exactly 10 months ago, and we had Bodie on the Blister podcast, uh, but now we are doing the follow-up conversation that we had promised back then, and we are going to dive deep into the world of gear here. And while Bodhi was unquestionably one of the most fun and exciting and creative ski racers out there, probably of all time. I gotta say, when it comes to conversations about gear, Bodhi has to be on the Mount Rushmore of guests we've had on Gear 30. You guys are in for a treat. Hearing Bodhi break down different elements of ski design and ski boots and optics. We talk a good amount about eyewear in this conversation. It's a bit of a tour de force performance and a real treat. There's also a bit of a teaser. You'll hear it about some boot and binding things that Bodhi has been thinking about for quite a long time. So stay tuned for that in this conversation. So that is our business here today. We are going down the rabbit hole with Bodhi to talk about skis and ski boots and optics and a little bit of binding talk as well. So with all that said, what we have for you is an all-time Gear 30 episode in my opinion, and I hope you enjoy it. And so let's go ahead and get to my conversation with Bodie Miller. Here we go. Well, Bodie, how are you doing today? And welcome to Gear 30. Doing well. Um, thanks for having me. It's It's been a, a funny little couple of years here. And since we spoke last, even it's continued. Um, but yeah, yeah, everything's good. Family's good. Business is good. I'm actually starting to get that little itch for for snow and for the the winter, which is uh, typical for me, but had been somewhat um, repressed or or suspended when I was living in California because you just don't have, uh, A, the opportunity to ski as as sort of, um, you know, right out the door, but also just the climate and everything's just weird. So, yeah, it's fun to get that back. The kids are starting to talk about it, which is fun. Yeah, I mean, back in Crested Butte, we've actually already had the first snow of the season but i am currently in santa monica looking at the ocean and so it very much resonates what you mean with it i'm like wait 
winter's coming. I'm it's uh, there's a bit of a disconnect currently, but uh, yeah, talking to Bodie Miller, looking at the ocean. These are the these are the days. So um, anyway, well, man, last time we talked, that was a kind of a tour de force, and we covered a whole lot of ground. It was funny as I was heading to LA yesterday. I I was back listening to our conversation, and the thing I kept thinking was like, I can't believe the amount of, of ground we did cover in that. And so I do hope people go back to that conversation. There, You had a lot of good things to say in that, but we kind of wrapped that conversation by saying, sometime we're going to need to circle back and just kind of dive in on the gear front. And so, uh, so that is our work today. There's kind of, I think, four main things that we wanted to talk about. We'll get into some ski, ski design stuff, ski boots, bindings, and optics. And then in addition to that, we want to try to push you a little bit and get clear on just some of your own preferences with respect to these things. And I think that's going to be pretty illuminating for for a lot of people. So maybe we start here. In your ski racing days, what did you care most about when it came to skis? And I'm going to just leave that as an open question, but did you have certain attributes certain elements of ski design that you personally seem to be most interested in as a racer? Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, what was critical for me? Cause uh, I was, um, I mean, I'm tall. I have long lower legs. I'm just kind of a, you know, I'm not built, um, as a balanced skier. Uh, typically if you watched any of the old guys, Thomas Fogdo, uh, Tomas Sikora, big, tall, slalom skier guys, they're all over the place too. I was kind of in that category. And then I, it, it was in every event for me. So what was critical was, uh, a very defined, uh, balance point on the ski. And, and that was, that allowed me to know where I could hit the ski in, you know, hectic situations and have consistent grip and, and movement through the ski. Ideally that, that position was um also fast right i mean uh, my end goal was just to be quick through the snow and what what was sort of interesting about that through the evolution of shape skis is that as we built the skis wider and and more side cut we ended up moving that grip point from the center of the ski um underfoot out further and further and right in the phase where um, a lot of guys kind of jumped on board with, with having really direct input to the factories, the manufacturing process. This is probably like, Oh, five around. Um, that was kind of the culmination of, I was one of the, not only, but I was one of the first guys to really be in the race rooms, building skis, talking about feeling with the engineers, trying to bridge that gap between what they saw us do, what we were talking about loosely to like actual material changes in the ski and then it became kind of the norm, honestly, like Benny Reich was in there, Axel Svindal was in there, Ted Ligeti was in there, Didier Kouche, guys who didn't necessarily have the same background in it, but had valuable input and, and wanted to, to sort of push things forward. So at that point is where you saw the first skis where the side cut really continued up past, um, well past snow contact, right? So you started to actually use the tip curve as the ski comes up off the snow as an activating factor in the radius of the ski. We also ran into radius restrictions at that same time. So it was a cheat for radius. People were saying, I want tighter radius. And a lot of that was actually driven by myself, Herman Meyer, 
um, guys who skied more of an old school direct line uh, like Tomba. We, we'd come in more direct. We would actually not arc a perfectly clean turn, but just get out of there quick enough. Um, and, and it just showed over time those guys who skied a bit more like Ted or, you know, Von Grunigan who skied a more round line, they were just like, dude, if we could tighten this up and ski the same way, but just pull a much tighter radius. Part of the reason they were going along, that's that's what the skis did, right? They just, you were on a 35 meter radius or 40 meter radius ski. So, um, so what ended up happening was the restrictions came, they changed that part, that initiated that grip way out of the tip. And to substantiate that, they made the skis torsionally stiffer. Otherwise that tip, when it tried to get grip, would just twist and wouldn't affect things the way they wanted. So, that actually was really bad for me because not only did it make them able to ski a slightly more direct line on a perfectly clean arc with super high edge angle above the turn the way that Ted did when he was so dominant for all those years in GS, but it also made it worse for me personally in that I couldn't come in direct and hit the ski. The tip was always trying to do something more than I had done in the past that was disruptive to the underfoot mechanism. And that was really relevant in every event for me. Slalom, uh, you know, my best slalom was always on skis that you didn't really feel the tip or tail. You actually kind of only felt the middle of the ski, you know, more like a hockey skate. And GS was the same when I was on Rossi and, and was able to win the, uh, you know, the GS title against, in my opinion, the toughest GS field there's ever been. That was with Von Gruninger at his best and, you know, Benny and, and, you know, Frederick Nyberg and a whole bunch of guys in that 04 season. Uh, the French were super strong. Italians were strong. It was just a crazy, powerful GS field. And for me to win that year was just shocking. And it really kind of was not in 100 percent, but very uh, indicative of the skis I was on. Those Razzis that year were just exceptional, which I think I mentioned to you. They went back into the factory. I couldn't rebuild them. We tried forever. Grande pulled him out, won his only two World Cups on the same skis, broke him between those two races and never was in the top 10 again. So again, it does highlight how critical the skis are, but also that one element of that ski that allowed you to just have that instant grip always in the same spot, just in front of the binding um, was just, you know, that defined my transition to speed because then I was like, okay, I need that same thing in speed, obviously, in speed, you get flappy tips. There's so much terrain. You're going so fast. You needed to have a really solid balance point. And, and uh, that became one of the, the defining characteristic of any ski I designed and what I was looking for. It's really funny hearing you talk about this. I started thinking about the shift that happened, you know, years ago in tennis and tennis rackets. Then I was like, oh, wait, right. Bodie was a very good tennis player. But when we shifted, right, from wood rackets into carbon rackets and the rest, it really completely changed the game in the way, maybe in an analogous way that you're talking about when we started seeing these changes in ski design. Does that analogy resonate to you or what's on or off about that? Yeah, no, it's, 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 very, it's very accurate. I also, I mean, I think there's, there's comparisons across basically every industry, right, tech in terms of material use, but also just computer modeling, you know, knowledge and how they could um, sort of pressure test ideas to reduce the risk of innovation, you know, so that they weren't just blowing R&D budgets randomly. Yeah. And that that was huge. I mean, that that was massive in tennis because they started using exotic materials because they could tell the vibration frequencies and all the stuff in 
you know, graphene, for instance, that had kind of broke into um, those combinations allowed them to take what would have been considered dramatic risk and and not really have much risk. I mean, you know, they that was analogous in in cycling um, with bikes, you know, dropping weight and increasing transmission of power from pedal to wheel uh, in, in hockey with the carbon fiber um, sticks that just load and, and are lighter and, you know, have way better rebound than, than the old typical wood ones. But yeah, I mean, tennis, tennis was interesting because it, it went back and forth and back and forth, right? Sampras at that time, one of the best guys sort of in that transition from not necessarily wood, but he was in that early phase yep. and he played with that, with that Wilson pro staff for his whole career, you know, and Sampras, I mean, uh, Federer, same thing was playing with that thing way past the time where most people thought that he should be on a different racket. You know, it's just, he was giving away too much to the younger guys who, who, uh, you know, had the, the full, you know, weight distribution and all that. And that's, that's more what I think it was versus anything, you know, like golf, right? You change the material, you don't necessarily change the swing weight. All these guys add significant head weight to their tennis rackets now, way above what the production rackets are. But they're able to move it around uh, effectively versus the old rackets. Like, you know, the old, I, I still play with a, a McEnroe Dunlop, hmm. you know, the, the wooden long. And that thing is awesome. Like the swing weight of that thing is so radical. And the head is so small that you kind of, if you miss, you really know it. But also <laughs> when you hit it, it's just money. Huh. But you just have no ability to move the weight around. Um, you know, and, and that's, I think, the biggest thing that has changed. And it definitely has been relevant in the ski space. Although in this case, we're talking more about flex points and, and you know, specific characteristics that maybe don't translate as well. But definitely it's been a, we've lived through a, a crazy time in the last 30 years. I mean, every, I'm, I'm a multi-sport guy. <laughs> every sport has changed a lot. Staying on race skis for just a minute, if we're talking about, say, slalom to GS slalom to downhill, rank those categories where you think the ski itself becomes either most important or trickiest to pull off in the best way for the sport. I'm not sure that's the best way to ask the question, but one might say like, well, I mean, in downhill, just make it heavy and pretty straight and, you know, pray to your maker uh, that the day goes all right. But, but like, how do you think about skis, the ski itself and those say three particular disciplines? Yeah. I mean, there, there isn't a, a way to, to, to sort of rank them. Honestly, they're, they're all, the equipment is is so critical in everything. If you have slow skis, you got no chance. Yeah. Period. In downhill, in anything really, even GS, there are slow skis. I had a pair of GS skis when I was on K two. I think I told you the story. I took them to Korea. My tech wouldn't go with me. He he like had something against Korea or whatever, so he didn't go. I was in World Cup. This is like you know I guess late nineties, early two thousands. We had in Yongpyong and. Uh, and so I brought these GS skis. They were called the Patriot. They were the K2 Patriot. They were blue GS ski. And we'd had awesome GS skis prior to that. The Merlin 6 and, and all that was, was, there were, I mean, I was pulling off miracle results on those skis. And I went there and I had skied on them one day and I loved the feel. I hadn't been in timing. I went there and I skied in a timed training course. And I was like three seconds off of the rest of my team in a, in a 35 second GS. And I was arcing every turn. I, I couldn't do anything else. I was like, 
And so I ended up racing the GS in Yongpyeong on my slalom skis because I put the slalom skis in the GS training course and I was beating everybody else <laughs> on 173 um, slalom skis. So, uh, you know, again, it's not to get too many uh, sort of uh, anecdotal stories in there, but that I ended up qualifying starting, you know, I, was, I qualified in a World Cup GS on slalom skis. It was prior to any of the regulations and any of the stuff, but um, I had would have had zero chance of qualifying on those GSEs. It was just the, the side cut, the way the ski bent. It just was grinding through the snow all the time. And it just was felt good, actually, besides the fact that I could feel that it was grinding. But I mean, the turns were great. It was, you know, easy because I was going so slow, probably. But, um, you know, I, I think the most challenging um, is is probably slalom, just because the turn radius is so short. There's a lot of different variables. You have a lot of ruts or, you know, chunky spots where you can't have an overreactive tip. Your margins are so small with hooking tips and everything, and everything's so quick, your balance point has to be really well-defined. So I think slalom is has always been the trickiest. Um but, you know, it's obviously personal, too. When you watch Hersher, you know, he had great skis as well. But he was such an exceptional skier that you got this impression that it was a lot easier for him. Like, he just, I mean, I, I, when I watched him ski and also Michaela, it just was like watching an alien. I was like, I can't, I couldn't finish three runs in a row ever, let alone like 10 or 12 slaloms in a row even if I was trying to go slow and they're doing it running, going faster and seeming like they're taking plenty of risk, you know, compared to everybody else and just and winning, you know, race after race after race. That just seemed very foreign to me in terms of what my my feelings were when I was skiing slalom. It was like rolling a hundred sided dice every time and hoping you get six or whatever it is. Um, but yeah, I mean, there is no easy easy way to, to build a ski that works well just because of the variables, right? That's one of the challenging and great things about skiing is no two turns are the same. No, no snow conditions are the same. No course sets the same. Everything is different. So the athlete has to have hopefully a big window where they feel really comfortable pinning it and, and making it to the finish without significant mistakes. And that's, that's sort of where that balance point thing became so critical was that gave me at least a, a fighting chance. All right, man, it's time to talk ski boots. Uh, I've been looking forward to this for a while because um, maybe it's not as simple as all that, but I just always come back to like, Bodhi liked to ski race in a Reikley. Please explain. Well, I never got to ski race in a Reikley, um, the full tilt. I, I, it's one of my, actually, you know, I can't say never. I've raced little dinky races around here and, and stuff. And um, But the purpose of of, you know, a ski boot is to, I think transfer energy to the ski and allow you to to do what you need to do but also be consistent right it's, it's the purpose of your skis the purpose of your boot you want to go fast but you want to be consistent mistakes um kill kill you in skiing so you know the the thing that i like about the reikley that that has been lost over the last call it 15 years 20 years probably 20 has been the last time there there used to be an old lang i think it was the ls1 um or something like that. There was a, a Lang that was better in speed. It was what like uh, Luke Alphon and actually Herman skied on, uh, Eberharder skied on back kind of in the 90s when the Austrians were smashing everybody. They were basically all on that that boot. And it was the last Lang that was a true speed boot, they called it. 
it flexed a little bit more forward. Um, if you took a ski boot and you bolted it to the floor on concrete uh, and you flexed forward, your knees have to track out. The boot flexes out. So if you, if you then take that into skiing, if you're neutral and your edge angle is whatever it is, right, 30 degrees, and you're neutral and you start tipping in and then you push forward, even though you track your knee in a dead straight line, typically everyone's knee goes in when they flex forward, you know, but the boot is actually increasing the edge angle above what your knee is doing. So it's not a linear path. Your knee and the, you know, it does the ski boot won't track straight forward, put it that way. So that was always annoying to me. It was designed in the seventies, really when the, when the Nordica Grand Prix was first sort of built and that became the norm. And that was when skis had no side cut. It made a lot of sense then because as you drove your knee forward, it increased the edge angle given where your knee was in a, in a linear path. And that allowed the ski with no side cut to kind of initiate the turn and, and help the front of the ski. Um, now with side cut, it seems like you'd actually probably want the opposite. Um, if anything, you might want a ski that, that actually does where your boot tracks in because you're neutral, you have your edge angle, this, you can build a super aggressive ski that initiates quick. And then as that tip starts to close where your center of mass is going this direction and the tip starts to close on that, where your center of mass is going to impact the front half of the ski, um, unless you scoot back and, and, you know, allow that thing to sneak out underneath you, which again, I did lots of, but it doesn't get you across the hill enough. So to get yourself across the hill, you kind of have to stack up on the front half of that ski. And if you had a ski that decreased the edge angle at that point, you have to figure most of that happens below the fall line, right? The rise line. Um, when you, as soon as you cross that, if you're pointing dead straight down the hill and you have 30 degrees of edge angle, that's the only time when your edge angle is true. Above that, with 30 degrees of edge angle, you'd, to, on the snow, you'd actually have to be at 40 or whatever the pitch is, right? Because you're working against the fall line of the hill. If I'm going across the hill and my edge is here, then as I go down the fall line, I have a true edge angle. And then below the fall line, the edge angle is going to be way higher because you're working against the hill. The hill's dropping away from you. You know, as you're traversing across a very steep pitch, your effective edge angle on the snow might be 90 degrees, even though you're standing up straight up and you're not even going anywhere, right? So that part to me was always the inverse of what it should be. You'd want lower edge angle as the hill worked against you so that you weren't just maxing out the edge angle and either booting out for one thing, but also just overpressuring the front half of the ski. So the Reikley, that old um, you know, flexon comp, is a straight boot. It flexes straight forward. Nothing changes. For me, I could change the aggressiveness of the boot. I could change a million things and the ski and the setup and the tuning that would make it aggressive or not. I just like the fact that if I started a turn and then I pushed forward, it was my knee and the ski and the, it was all in the same relation. And then I could build pressure and I could adjust, but it just didn't add this variable. The real problem comes with bumps and terrain. If you're, you know, not expecting something and you hit a bump that you didn't see and your knee happens to be slightly forward, your edge, your edge effectively with your knee staying in the same place, your boot flexing and the ski going like this and jacking up by as much as like five, six, eight degrees of edge angle. That's, that to me is an unnecessary uh, element <laughs> and I just didn't like it. I was really looking forward to putting some, some race runs down on those Reikley's, never got the chance. One of the questions, and, and I mean, I was skiing the only full tilts that I've skied were, you know, in the last 10 years. 
But one of the things that I noticed, well, I mean, one, those are pretty high volume boots. And we've talked about on past Gear 30 conversations how if you have the more volume you have, you know, extra volume you have in a boot, that is absolutely going to affect things like the torsional stiffness, the flex pattern and the rest of a boot. But and so I'm I'm admitting on the one hand, the the full tilts I've skied were higher volume than I would would want or need. But the biggest difference I noticed was there just wasn't the same torsional stiffness of a heavy, robust four buckle boot. And I've never heard you talk about whether that was a fact. I think you've just done an incredible job explaining what it is about a Reikley design that you like so much. But I'd love to ask about that torsional rigidity part. I could In the full tilts, I can just feel the boot kind of bowing out. And that isn't the feeling I'm looking what, for. What what ones did you ski on? The first one I ever skied was the Seth Morrison Pro Model. It just didn't, for yeah. me, I was like, nope, this is, I mean, I could literally in a hard carve feel that boot flexing out laterally. And I was, you know, that's the opposite of what I'm looking for in that situation. So yeah, yeah, 100%. So I I, uh, I skied the Seth Morrison Pro too. So I got the full tilts from them, uh, knowing what I knew of Reikley and all the stuff. I actually got uh, the first chair eights, and I got a pair of Seth Morrison's. I went sp- spent a ridiculous amount of time in my garage building them out the way I wanted. I punch all my own stuff, got them set up, was all psyched. Um, took them down to Chile uh, for a speed camp. This is when I was on bombers. This is like two thousand. 15 probably and um and was an absolute liability to myself and everybody around the course i mean i was i could i could rip fast for little sections but um every time i compress i folded the boot i I ejected out of a binding that's on 18 you know pre-release forward in a turn just because i folded it so hard and i thought you know everyone thought i blew out my knee i went cartwheeling out into the you know the the shit on the side of the hill um came home and was like, I'd messed with them the whole time down there. I was down there for like 10 days or something. And I was like, God, there is no way that guys won Kitzbühel on this boot. There's just, there's just simply no way. I, I don't care who, how tough you are. And I'd always heard that they put like coffee cans in the back of the cuff. They'd cut like an old Folgers coffee can, rivet it together and slide it down in the back for, for, you know, rigidity on the spine. But I was like, that's not going to fix what I'm talking about. This is a this is a whole boot issue. I came home. I had a pair of classics of full tilt classics in my house. There were 27.5, so super small. I'm a, you know, 12 and a half, 13 foot. But that's what I used to race in is 27.5. No work done to them. I jammed my foot in there barefoot and buckled them up and flexed it. And I was like, problem solved. That's that's the difference. There's only two models that are actually still the Reikley mold. The, the drop kick and the classic are the two that are still the old um, flex on comp to mold. The rest of them, they look the same. You'd, you'd, you'd have to have a, you know, a micrometer or really be knowledgeable to see what they changed. They, they ch- changed wall thickness. They changed the sole a little bit, uh, the, ch- the shape. If you look at the, the boot boards, the boot boards are very different. The boot boards, what you're talking about with uh, torsional integrity of the boot. Um, that's the internal structure underneath your boot board. When you take that boot board out, you can see that they removed a bunch of plastic in there on the, the ones. It was actually Dalbello who did that. Dalbello bought 
bought the molds and everything, did that for years, and then it spun off into Full Tilt. And um, it, it was just, and again, I, I can't say I was overly shocked. I was more just like happy that I'd figured it out because I've seen what happens when you remove material from the wall thickness or, you know, anything from a boot. It, it's, it's a, it's a house of cards. I mean, yeah. it's a miracle ski boots work at all because <laughs> yeah. they, they, they really shouldn't work um, as well as they do. But so I ended up building out a pair of, um, of drop kicks with uh, PJ back in the East coast. PJ used to do Darren's boots at baller. He's best, one of the best boot guys on the planet. And we spent a bunch of time together. I just like hanging out with him in his shop anyway, but we built a, a sick pair of boots and I went up and took them up to, I was filming for Samsung doing their 4d uh, experience thing. So we went up to Lake Louise right after the women had raced there. So the race hill was in great shape. We got the race hill. We ran super G on that with a big, you know, camera cluster, uh, 12 cameras shooting, you know, full, full 3d for the 4d experience. And then we went up and skied, um, in British Columbia on some really extreme terrain that put me way out of my comfort zone, considering that I had this 30 pound camera rig hanging off this carbon fiber vest thing that I had on. And they were like, you, can you ski that? And I was like, uh, yeah, it's like an 800 foot death drop on one side and an unknown cornice. And you're asking me to like on a spine drop, like a 10 foot thing onto a spine. I was like, yeah, I could do it. Just tell my wife, I'm sorry if it goes sideways. Cause, but anyway, so in that super G I had, uh, Craig Daniels who was my coach for eight years on world cup. Uh, came up and he was doing follow cam stuff because they wanted that as well as part of the the making of it. And it was after about four or five runs um, down the Super G course. And I had this rig on twice. I actually did it with no rig where it was just follow cam. And uh, and he came down after one of the, you know about five runs and he said, dude, he said, you've never skied hmm. this, this, that dynamic and that well, that powerful, that balance, the position. And, um, that was kind of what inspired me to make that effort to come back in which I got sued by head and (laughs) you know, all water, water under the bridge at this point. But, and that was why is I was able to put my body into aerodynamic positions at the top of the turn that I just could never do on a typical boot because everything happened too quick. I would initiate too quick. The the ski would load too quick and I would pin through the middle of the gate and pinch, which was my primarily uh, primary problem in, in super G and downhill. And this just eliminated that. I just could go aggressive with my movement in a really aerodynamic position, know that nothing was going to change, and then power all the way through the turn with just, he said it, it looked like the only time I ever skied like that was in the beginning of the 0405 season when I first switched to Atomic and I had those, those magic ski boots. And ironically, those boots were cracked. I think I told you this too, maybe on the end of the toe box. So where you're, you know, the end of that little T where your overlap happens and then they cracked from there and I'd had them built actually down in Portillo. It was the first pair I'd had built when I was testing atomic and, uh, and they broke pretty much right away. I was skiing four events on them. So, you know, in, in Portillo you have who knows sun, who knows what, but anyway, they cracked right there, just a little crack that went down from the edge of the T and normally you just drill a hole. Sometimes you'll put a little you know patch on it. I just left it. And they just got better and better. And that crack extended further and further. And by the time the, the beginning of the season happened, I won sold in by a second on that pair of boots. That was when I went to Lake Louise, won my first downhill and super G both by a second and then went to Beaver Creek, won all the training runs, then won the downhill there, hipped out in the super G and got up and still was second and then won the GS the next day 
and then went over to Sestrier and won the slalom by a second um, on the same pair of boots. And in the finish of the slalom, I, I was like doing my goofy celebration, leaned back and broke the toe box off the boot. So it had cracked so far that it actually on my right boot broke down and the boots were drunk. I didn't win another race that year until uh, World Cup finals where I tied Darren for the Super G. But that that to me was was what was happening there. Even though the boot was still a typical aggressive outward flexing boot, because the toe box was broken and was allowing more torsional flex in that toe box, the more it got broken, it just became less and less aggressive on that initial forward yep. push. Yep. And and it, it just allowed me to be so much more consistent and stable. If you watch that, you know, Super G or downhill from Lake Louise, I looked like a different racer. I was like in position in the beginning of turns that I just couldn't do any other time. And I wasn't pinching because it wasn't initiating as quick and it wasn't throwing me all out of balance. So, um, anyway, the, the solution for anyone who's testing is I, if they've skied on full tilt previously, I would say not just for racing, but really just for all skiing. Um, and a buddy of mine, actually a really close friend who I held when he was a day old. Now he's 22 shows how old I am, but, um, my older sister's best friend's kid. Um, I, he, I put him on full tilts last year and he was like, Oh Jesus, like I've skied on, you know, everyone's a bunch of jokers. And I put him on a pair of drop kicks that I set up for him and you can get custom tongues too. So he's on like a, a 12 or 13 tongue and, and a different cuff in the back that makes it stiffer. So you don't have to put Folgers coffee cans in there. And, and he just destroyed it last year. And within like a week was like, dude, I hate saying that the Millers are right because he grew up in my family and uh-huh. everyone in my town hates saying the Millers are right. But he's like, honestly, you're so right. These things absolutely smash. And the, it's the same thing for free skiing and powder, right? You you go and people don't think of it, but it is relevant. In powder, you're always fighting balance points because you just don't know what your ski is going to necessarily do. You don't know what's under the snow. It often happens that you get pitched just a tiny bit forward. And if you get pitched a tiny bit forward on a typical boot and it reacts, that's even though the Seth Morrison's, the first chair eights, all those are, in my opinion, far inferior to the drop kick and and uh, and classic, they do flex straight forward. So you, the reason that they're so popular among you know extreme skiers is that you don't have this added variable in there where you drop a cornice and land on something gnarly where you can't crash. You don't have to worry about this extra variable that if your tips hook up a little bit, you're going to all of a sudden max out your edge angle for no reason, except that you happen to flex forward a little bit. So, um, I would say my advice to you would be retest. <laughs> retest, bring the, <laughs> send my boots to you first, or just get the Folgers coffee cans ready. No, you can, I mean, honestly, they're great. It's a small company. Um, you can just, you know, you can get all the stuff. You just add, you know, say, Hey, I want the stiff tongues. They actually started producing the, at least the 12 tongue now. Yeah. Um, which is which is reasonable. It's it's you know substantially helps the boot. I'm on like a 16 or 18. I'm on full urethane tongue, which is white, and it's just that makes all the difference for me because I I do hit the front of the boot pretty hard. One last question on the boot side of things. One of the things we talk a lot about is I I did, this is kind of goes into the just what are your personal preferences side of things. I often say that like especially for skiing, you know, crested buttes, steep technical off-piece terrain. I really like to be able to get into the flex of my boot. I don't want a big wall right off the top, right? Like let me get into the flex a little bit and then I want a nice 
kind of progressive flex. I kind of feel like if I was only spending my time on groomers and just ripping groomers, then I think I care less about that whole wall right off the top of the flex pattern. And because I, it's like there's just fewer variables, right? Now I'm not talking about a World Cup course. I'm talking about like a, you know, normal groomer at a normal ski area. What are your thoughts on that? Are you somebody who like, yeah, you need a stiff boot. You just explained that. But what about that initial flex off the top? What what was your take on that when you were racing or is that different than what you are into today? No, same, same as when I was racing. And it's, it's really, uh, I think it's a terminology issue as well as educational issue, but a typical boot, um, actually has a, an inverted flex curve, if you call it like the initial part is where you have the least leverage. If you're at, if your foot's like this, you, your whole, your knees here say, yep. and you, you know, you have the least amount of mechanical advantage over the ski boot. And then as you flex forward, that, that mechanical advantage increases. And then at a certain point, the bottom of the boot will start to bow out. You'll have that, that belly out effect and you'll get to a point where the whole boot will collapse. And that's why people rupture Achilles tendons. They, they, you call it folding over the top. It actually, unless you have a really stiff boot that binds up in that part and is so stiff on the lower that it doesn't want to bubble out, then that's where you just have a super gnarly stiff boot all the way around. But either way, it's kind of inverted the full tilts. That's what I like about them is that because the tongue is really all that dictates your flex and it's got that ribbed effect and it's far enough forward and up, it's kind of a high instep. You know, there's a lot of, that's what you were probably talking about volume. There's a lot of distance between the front of your ankle, the top of your foot and where the tongue actually sits. It sits up further than a typical boot that's more in line with your foot. And that allows for less of that bowing out. And the tongue is designed to absorb pressure in a, increasing fashion so your initial bit the tongue softer because the way the ribs work it just it's easy to push on and then as it bends forward because that instep is further out you're actually pressing on it more in a straight direct fashion so the part of the boot that would have to flex you're actually trying to crush the plastic straight forward versus having it if it was more like this it would just hinge over the top but when it's it's so far up and forward you end up with a a point where you can't go over the top and that, that was always nice for me is like, you know, I don't like that where it's hard, harder. And then you get to a point you're like, Oh, like I might blow my ankle out right now just from flexing over the top because it, it, you start to get enough mechanical advantage that the boot just can't support you. And I've never, I've never had that. It's part of the design of that Reikley or full tilt is that you really can't do that because the, the actual geometry of the boot, they've moved that part so far up and forward that at a certain point, you're actually kind of flexing against the plastic in a you know direct way where it's just blocked against the front of your boot where that tongue sits yep. down in there and it just can't move. So, um, I mean, that's a, that's a huge thing for me, both on, on groomers so I can ski aggressively and, uh, and in powder because, you know, going over the front in powder is a death sentence if you're in a hairy spot. Do you have any thoughts on bindings? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's such a, a big, uh, big variation. I think that's the only real, you know, takeaway is that you, you can put, you know, mounting positions are different. Performance characteristics are different. Flex pattern of the ski is different. Um, you know, we, I, I always said back in the old days, when I was on Fisher, Chip Knight was on Fisher as well. And he was on marker bindings. I was on Solomon. And I was like, 
why why are you not moving your bindings to where i am i'm winning all the slaloms and you're in my opinion a better slalom skier than i am and you barely do qualify and he so i got on his skis and i was like oh that's why is because he was so far forward the marker bindings just inherently were your whether it's the way the energy is transferred down through the screw pattern or who knows forward pressure or whatever they were just a totally different binding than mine and i had he had to go back way further he tried back and it was actually just worse but he only went back the amount i did and you had to go back another whole step to have the marker bindings actually work the way that, that mine were in solomon so you know i'm I'm a fan of the look uh, binding. I think it's ironic and funny that that binding hasn't really changed in 45 years. And it's probably the best binding out there. Um, Safety wise, (laughs) who knows? I mean, it seems to come off at the right times loosely. I do think that there's a huge um, impactor. We've talked about, I think of crud on the bottom of your boot. I think a lot of people don't take the time or energy to actually clean their boot off. And I think that's a, a dangerous habit to have, but um but in terms of performance, that that binding I think is is awesome. I really do look forward to, and I have um, very well defined plans of how to modify the whole boot binding um, plate setup, um, and I look forward to to doing that because I think it's so overdue. Right, we haven't really changed any of that shit in forty five years, so <laughs> I feel wild. like that's a long that's a long enough stagnation period. Interesting teaser. So there are thoughts on the whole boot binding interface and some things, not just thoughts, but some, some things you'd like to introduce to the world. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I have, a, I have full designs. I just have to honestly get the bandwidth to do it. I, I know exactly what I want to do. I know it's doable. It's buildable. Just got to get there. Wow. All right. I'm tempted to push you on that, but I, I also kind of want to just let that hang in the air a little bit. And that's maybe <laughs> a, another conversation. I'm going to ask you, though, about crossing uh, at the end of this, and maybe that will connect the dots a little bit more with what you've just said. Before we get there, I want to talk about optics and goggles and sunglasses, that kind of thing, because I was like, you know, I'm not sure we've ever talked to anybody about that, certainly not any ski racers before. Um, but we're sitting here dorking out about, oh, well, if the side cut of the ski or if the tip is, you want to actually soften that up a little bit torsionally, you know, and we're nerding out on all these points of skis and ski boots. But it's like, you know, what's nice when you're skiing 80 miles an hour is being able to see. And I was like, all right, let me just talk to Bodhi a bit about like how much attention you were paying to what eyewear you were racing in. Did you care by the time, you know, we go back from our past conversation about all the mental preparation and the rest. And if your, your boot is as dialed as you could get it and your ski is, was the goggle more an afterthought or let's just talk a bit about the whole eyewear situation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, and I did it last year, um, actually ironically with that same buddy of mine who, um, we were skiing on a day that was awesome powder, still snowing. Um, he was on the, the, the drop kicks that I'd set him up on. He was on the one eighteens that we'd set up. Right. And he was just having an unbelievable day. And he's one of those dudes who he grew up in my town with me winning world cups. So he kind of had that high aspiration bar and, and was never, he raced, but never was that into it, but just is like an unbelievable hard charger. And he's, he's world-class in terms of his natural ability, his balance explosive. He's a littler guy. Um, 
And he was just like, you could see that you, you could not find a thing probably on the planet that he wouldn't be like, I'm comfortable skiing that. He just was right in the zone. And I said, dude, pop your goggles off and let's run this one. No goggles. And he, he it was snowing and fairly flat light over overcast. And it was like, you, you shot him with a tranquilizer dart. Like he could not ski. He, he was so bad. He couldn't see anything. He couldn't move. He, and then he did try to about halfway down. I could see that he was trying and he just ragdolled himself almost instantly and, you know, face in the snow. And that, that's a, that's a really obvious version of it. But if you can, you know, then, then it's all about, we've all agreed, right. That that would make you suckier. It makes your day worse, makes you more dangerous, makes you a worse skier. So we've agreed on that in principle. Now it's just degrees. So if you have goggles that the lens is wrong, you have goggles that are scratched, you have goggles that let in too much air, you know, not enough air, fog up, whatever. Those are all degrees of what we just said. It's just going to make things worse. So when you're racing, it's, yeah, it's absolutely critical. Uh, I mean, critical. Like if you had the wrong goggles on, um, it can move you from winning a race to to not qualifying or crashing and hurting yourself. So it's... I mean, you have to be able to see at least as well as you possibly can in those conditions on that surface, whatever. So, um, I mean, that, that is why the Revo relationship is so important to me is that, you know, they take that seriously. They don't, they're, they're not just building glasses uh, and goggles that do something right They're They're not just trying to sell them because people buy them. They're, they're actually trying to build the best stuff they, they possibly can and and really thinking it through of what's the application and what are the variables and and how do we accommodate the the customer really because it's different right people with different eyes have different needs so um i I love that i found a company that's aligned um with my sort of philosophy on it and had an awesome time this last year testing and messing around with different lenses and you know the the you know polyphotochromatic has been around for a long time you know photochromatic being the ability to change the, the tint um, depending on the light conditions. And for me, when it first came out, they didn't really have it dialed. It was kind of a, kind of a mess. Um, but now it's evolved and the technology's gotten better. Um, and it's, it's unbelievable how nice that is, particularly for a ski goggle. I mean, sunglasses is great, but, but a ski goggle, who isn't out there at least on half their days where light conditions change, right? I mean, 100%. they change from morning, from morning to afternoon every single day because the sun moves and it's typically lower angle sun. So, but then there's clouds and snowstorms and everything else. And having a goggle that adapts to that without having to carry extra lenses and all that to me was, was really, a you know, an important evolution of, of goggles. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I've I've seen it. It drives me up a wall. I see dudes like you know throwing their goggles just around. They're all scratched up. They haven't changed the lens in three years. I'm like, yeah, that's eh, personal choice. But <laughs> do you ever notice that you think there's a stick in front of you all the time because that giant scratch on your lens that's been there for <laughs> for two years? Yeah. Um, yeah. It just to me, it's I I take I put my goggles in a bag. I keep them safe all the time. Like I treat them as a very important piece of my equipment. Before we hit the record button, you mentioned that you're like, I wasn't that great of a flat light racer. And I always say, like, I think I'm the world's worst flat light skier. When I started really putting a lot of ski days in, it was in Taos, New Mexico, which is like, it's either snowing or it's like perfect, crisp visibility. 
And, you know, so if it's snowing, we're skiing the trees and you could see fine. And if it wasn't snowing, it was like crystal clear. So anytime I have to go ski in places with low light, I'm just, it's embarrassing. And uh, I don't know, I, I guess I was a little surprised and yet not surprised to hear you say like, yeah, I didn't love the flat light stuff either. Um, then I'm just always shocked by, you know, my friends from like who grew up in um, skiing Eagle in Alaska, like those guys, it's like I could just blindfold them and they're charging. And I'm like, how, what is happening right now? Anyway, I don't know if you have thoughts about any of that, but, but for me, I'm, I would put myself on the extremely sensitive end of, I want to be able to see, and I've, I've said that many times on Blister, I would much rather have good visibility than good snow. Yeah, I think that's pretty normal. Um, you know, I think you do adapt, you, you get used to it. Um, people who either for whatever reason skied in a lot of really crappy light or had really crappy goggles or, and then some of it's just technique, right? Some guys like Hersher or, or, you know, Herman, um, Andrea Schiffer, one of the best flat light skiers there's ever been. Um, you know, Hans Knaus, Christian Meyer, a bunch of Austrians, you know, and they do that too. They ski in the Alps are typically North South, right? That whole line of mountains. So they face North. So they get a lot of really flat lights. Sun goes sort of behind the mountains all day. They get a lot of shadow and really tough light conditions. So probably technique, they have that as an advantage of growing up with that. But, um, but you know, there, there's a, there's an element of it that comes from experimentation and knowledge and awareness because flat light doesn't just mean you can't see anything. It just means you can only see certain things. Mm. And sometimes you can see certain things just as well as you could in good light, but other things that you rely on, you can't see basically at all. Um, you know, different little bits of terrain and, and tiny, tiny uh, debris things that identify distance and, and sort of altitude of, of different parts of the snow. But for me, I, I had a huge breakthrough in 2001. Um, I was on Brico and they had really crappy lenses, um, really crappy. And I was trying to win Solden and the first run, um, I, I, I'd won the run, uh, on Fishers and, I, uh, or maybe, I can't remember if I wonder if I was second or third, but I was right in there and I, I pulled out this red lens that actually was not a Brico lens, but it fit in our goggles. It was at that time, um, you know, Brico had gone through this transition, uh, loosely of Luxottica purchase, all that shenanigans. And so I found this red lens and the second run in Solden is notoriously shadow, right? The whole, the whole pitch is in the top sun and you get a little shadow and then the whole pitch is shadow. And that red lens was horrible to look through. Like it just, everything felt wrong about it to me. But when I went on the pitch for inspection, I was like, oh my God, I can see at least the, the, the defining characteristics of the chatter marks. Like that part I could really see really clearly. And so all, and I ended up winning the race. And, and the, if you look back, you'll see in almost all the low light races from that point forward, all the way through to POC, when I had the POC kind of rounded goggle lenses, I used this, this gnarly red lens. And um, that, that breakthrough actually, you know, I ended up winning a few races in, in poor light conditions, but it was primarily just totally adjusting where I was used to seeing the train everywhere and using my peripheral vision and everything else, which I couldn't see anything when it was flat light or, or bad. But I could see if I focused on it, 
I could see just the little bits, the definition of the ruts or the chatter marks, especially at the high angles, like the top of the turn, which was enough information for me to, to move way, way more forward in my, in my racing success. So, um, I still do that now, like our, our lens that we use, we have a, we have a rose tint yep. and, um, and I, I pushed hard last year and got like a darker rose, huh. uh, and something about that, the adding a little bit more red pigment, a little bit more red element to it just allows you to pick up little bits of shadow. I think it's just, it's really darkening everything in a way, but you're, you can pick up little shadow bits that when the light's totally flat, if you're on something smooth, it gives you a bit more definition, which is really what you need to again, initiate your confidence to get you back in the kind of middle of the ski. Cause the first thing you do when you can't see is just go back. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. and everything goes sideways from there. But yeah, just, that made a huge difference for me. And that's, again, it's experimentation. Cause I think probably for different people, different eyes, it's going to be a different color scheme or whatever. Um, Ted's really heavy into the blue, uh, Ligeti, you know, he likes that blue, blue tint. It seems to help him in flat light. So sorry, let me do that again. Um, Revo has just rolled out this black collection and you've got a couple of kind of signature models in that collection. Tell us a little bit about that. Was that just a continuation of the work that you've been talking about for the past, you know, 10 minutes or so, or what were you most interested in about that collection or trying to get after? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think it's, it's been a a funny, um, process in the goggle world is that you know in the old days like i used to like uh you know maui gyms and and varnays you know revos actually back in the 80s were mm-hmm. were pretty pretty hot but they were kind of heavier they were mm-hmm. like a heavier sunglass and the old the old varnays like the tom cruise looking ones you know <laughs> um they just kind of slid down your nose there, there was a lot of things i didn't like about them and partly that was due to the weight and stuff so the one of the sort of paradigms in, in sunglasses is that light means cheap and bad. Um, yep. You know, they feel like a, a sunglass you bought out of the gas station, you know, for, for nine ninety nine. Um, but I, we kind of wanted to change that because there's a lot of elements to weight that actually improve functionality and um, and Im- improve the use case and and with technology now the material use and all that um we wanted to try that kind of application of carbon and things like that to maybe offset from a perception standpoint the the thought of cheap or, or crappy um and i think we've done it honestly i mean it, you still have to get them on to people and make them try them but uh that was a big part of that was you know super high quality lenses you know photochromatic so you have a, a larger window where the sunglasses operate really well you know the right amount of tint i have light blue eyes and i'm real sensitive i sneeze every time i go outside in the sun um so it really it, it does make a huge difference for me and but then at the same time addressing all the different issues right you don't need quite as much you know nose pad grip and and behind ear grip if you have a lighter sunglass because mm-hmm. it just doesn't have inertia to fly off your face if you're doing random things or slide down your nose um and, and we kind of use that as a tool to then make everything else better in the in the functional design of it. The lenses Revo just does a great job with. They take that really seriously, and and there's no question. But the frames and the hinges and all that is stuff that I'm constantly pushing them, and they they respond by doing you know incredible stuff. So these are, are definitely worth a try. Um, again, sunglasses are so personal. I never really push people to one thing or another because your face, they look goofy on your, right, <laughs> like, right. everybody's nose and face is different. Eyebrows, your eyelashes touch them or whatever. But 
But these are, I, I think we did a really good job and definitely are worth a look just because we really took it um, from a base level. Like we didn't look at previous stuff. We just said, what can we do that's the best of what we know how now? And yeah, I mean, for me, I don't like things that squeeze me behind the ears, right? But that keeps them on your face well. <laughs> so it's a trade-off. In this case, we made them so light um, that you just don't need the same kind of grip force so that you don't really feel them on your face as much, but they stay where they belong. And that was important. Hmm. I think that's a helpful rundown for like why certain people might want to go check those out. You know, so we wanted to go lightweight. We are keep pushing on the evolution of the photochromatic lens, which we've said early on. I, I was not into it. I I gave up yeah. on the early early versions of it. Um, so lightweight, good optics, and then you're talking about uh, refining the rest of the details around the glasses. So yeah, so it's like, well, if you're a person that that sort of sounds like what you're looking for, check them out. And I think that that's that's partly it happens all the time, right? Where where tech comes out. And it's not there yet. And people get bummed out about it and then they never go back. And I think that's a that's an error that lots of people fall into. Um, I just don't have that. I'm, I'm always kind of, because I've been an innovator and, and sort of been involved in that, I've watched. And it's fun to be the first dude who actually gets it right. And mm. you get that little like, haha, like you guys don't have to try it, but it's better. Um, so, yeah, I mean. I agree with you. The beginning was a train wreck and then, and I, I've mostly written it off too. I never raced with them ever. Um, but, but now they've got it, you know, at least to a place where I think it's substantially better than anything else. Hmm. I want to let you get going, but before I do let you go, I did want to get a bit of an update on Crossin and what's going on there. So we, we hinted at that a little bit earlier, but, um, what do you got for us? What should we know? Um, yeah, so we had, we had typical growing pains, stumbling blocks last year. We were on a really tight timeline. We got a bunch of skis out, um, you know, pull, pulled a bunch of them back because of random things, nothing really functional, but a lot of aesthetics and things. Um, we ended up with this 118 that was unbelievable last year. We, I had not, I skied on it 90% of the time last year. It was absolutely ridiculous ski. Um, we'll, we're going to continue. We're actually rolling up a new company. Crossing will semi-merge into that company. Crossing will still be built under its own name. We'll have kind of a, a, a larger volume play with this, this other company um, that we'll, we'll talk about when we, when we come back um, some other day. But uh, it will, we'll be announcing shortly here in the next, next month or so. Um, this year, we won't have a lot of production. We will have skis out there. They'll be mostly for, for you know, my friends, people I know, people who really want them. Um, just so that we can actually get ahead of it. I hate this kind of behind the eight ball panicky type feel. Um, it's not critical for our, our economics. So I want to do it right and, and have sort of the 22-23 season will be our, our true launch. We'll have a full line. It'll be, you know, stuff that's this year is a, a real true prototype vetting year. Even though we had a great starting point, I want to make sure that we get everything as, as tight as I can get it. Um, but yeah, all, all good. You know, Chase Engelhart, who's you know co-founder of Cross and my my buddy and and uh, co-owner, is fired up. He's he's down. He's going to be building stuff this year, specifically more shaped towards the touring ski market, which is obviously growing. It's still a tiny segment, but with his experience in carbon and his background in aerospace, he just has, I think, the ability to to rule that space. Um, you know, there's a lot of smart engineers who build. Um, really good skis, but he really comes at it from a performance standpoint and has the ability to still keep the the weight 
within that sort of elite level, um, you know, weight, weight range, um, and, and add a ton to the performance of the skis. So it, it'll be a fun year, fun more for me than maybe the general customer, because most people won't have access to them, but, um, definitely looking forward to bringing a full line that really, uh, represents what I want, you know, and we just hadn't really been able to do that. We did it with individual skis and, and specifics, but not, I want the whole line to be out there where people can be confident that they're buying something that, you know, has the full Bodhi seal of approval, if yeah. that means anything to them. Um, yeah. Well, I think after this conversation, if people weren't already interested in stuff that has the full Bodhi seal of approval, I think you've just, uh, articulated some stuff for over an hour here about why people might actually care about that seal of approval. I mean, you're clearly a guy that has been thinking about this stuff for a really long time and performing at a really high level. It's actually kind of shocking to me. Again, I I think back, you know, years ago when I was watching you on the on the World Cup and yeah, you know, I was I fell prey a little bit to that story of like Look at this crazy American guy that'll just go out there and try anything and throw himself around the hill. And it's like, okay, well, yeah, actually, maybe part of that is true. But I was not aware of exactly how critical you were being when it came to the examination of ski boots and bindings and skis and the like. And I sure hope that um, if some people out there maybe weren't aware of that aspect of how you approach this sport, um, I think that's no longer possible for them to uh, be un- unclear about that. So, uh, well, I, I, we we touched on it at one point, but the very short version is, I wasn't good enough not to try to put everything yeah. in, my, you know, in in line. Um, if I was Herman or, or you know Marcel Hersher or Michaela, sure, let's just go out and jump on what everyone else is going on and and see who's better. It's like the you know, if you're that confident in your ability and, and you know you're that good, fine. But I was looking at guys who I could, you know, objectively say were much better than me. And it wasn't just one or two. It was like 20. And I was like, all right, so I got to, I got to A, get every duck in a row. I got to take every variable out of play that I can and line everything up as well as I can. And then I also have to take a bunch of risk to give myself a chance to win. So um, you know, it's something that I, I, I think I was proud of in the sense that I was humble enough or smart enough, or maybe some weird combination to actually figure that out where I was like, look, I'm just not good enough to beat these guys unless I do this stuff. And then I had to be smart enough uh, to actually do it and execute. Um, and then, and then sort of brave enough to deal with the consequences because the risk I was taking was certainly putting me in a much riskier place than the rest of the racers who I was racing against were generally in. So um, yeah, I mean, it, you know, turned out fine now in hindsight. <laughs> <laughs> turned out fine. I think it did. Hey man, um, appreciate the time and the conversation. This has been, been fun to, to geek out about some of this stuff with you. So, uh, uh, I look forward to the next one. Look forward to what you're currently tinkering with and tinkering on more stuff down the line, I guess, uh, to, to be talking about and, and hopefully getting some time on. Yeah, absolutely. There's, uh, yeah, there's plenty, plenty that's in the pipeline. I just obviously, uh, proactively and retroactively apologize for not moving the ball forward more, but my, uh, my schedule is pretty, 
pretty uh, based on the family and kids and wife right now. But there's a lot of fun stuff that is in the pipeline that I'm I'm uh, definitely excited to bring. Excellent, man. Hey, thanks a lot. Looking forward to the next time. All right, man. Okay, it is time now for our weekly What We're Celebrating segment. And it is currently now Thursday, September 16th at 1.37 p.m. Pacific time. Because I have been out here in Santa Monica this week and had a number of meetings out here and doing different things. But literally the second that I am done recording this segment... I am heading over to go see my friend and friend of Blister and Blister member, Jeff McFetridge, who is absolutely one of my favorite people in the world. We've had Jeff on the podcast a few times. Um, Jeff is fantastic, and I am going to go meet up with him in his studio. And this is actually going to be the first time that Jeff and I have ever hung out in person together. So um, I'm pretty ecstatic. While I don't have any whistle pig on me here in Santa Monica, I am going to have to get my hands on some later tonight. Maybe Jeff and I will go find some. I don't know. Um, But that is absolutely what I'm celebrating tonight when we live in this funny modern world where we meet so many people kind of remotely. And I consider Jeff a very good friend, and it is just really cool that we are actually going to go get to finally meet up in person. So I'm going to raise my glass to uh, meeting up IRL with really good people. That's what we're celebrating this week. And so that then brings us to the end of this episode of Gear 30. I do want to remind you, If you haven't listened to that Blister podcast conversation that I had with Bodhi, you should definitely do that. That is episode number 154. We will put the link to that episode in the show notes to this episode, and you should definitely check that out. Um, So anyway, thanks to Bodhi for this conversation. Thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And from everybody back in Gunnison and Crested Butte, Please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we will talk to you again real soon.